Hello and welcome to The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategy in modern. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the man who made this all possible, Shane Beeps. Stan, always good to hear your voice, my friend. Thanks. If it wasn't for your commitment, I don't think I'd be recording right now. I would probably be in an igloo of my making. Yeah, Chicago is completely dreary right now, yeah? Yeah, you know who could tell you all about it and and share in my misery? It's our next co-host, our resident snowboy, Zach Colhan. Hey, that's me. Great job. Yeah, it's awful. It's just dreadful. It's it's hell itself has opened its mouth and swallowed us whole. Like the icy hell, the really chilly version. Yeah, Dante's hell. <laughs> yeah, to paint a picture for our listeners, it, we're recording this on Wednesday and the the height of the polar vortex is today. So I think it's like negative 30 outside in Chicago last I checked. Yeah, Dave was saying that his house was barely able to even keep up, like the heat in his house was barely able to keep up. And uh, he, they were held, he and his family were huddled upstairs for warmth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and unfortunately, we don't have Dave, right, guys? Yeah, that's right. He uh, he froze to death. Oh, well, that's 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 man. That's really brutal. Rest in peace. Yeah, I know. So we may never hear from him again. Maybe we can try to thaw him out for next week. We'll see what happens. Yeah, I mean, you know, Dave's got the fam. His kids is sick. So unfortunately, he's got to sit this one out. But that's why we have four hosts, because you'll barely notice that one's missing. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) All right. Should we jump into a little bit of housekeeping real quick before we do tournament report? Yeah, absolutely. Of course. We got some decks in the mail sent to our Gmail account. Thanks again to everyone doing that, both via email and we were getting some decks on Reddit as well. Uh, We saw a white taxes deck from Scott B, who topped eight a modern classic in Wooster with it. Also, Craig sent us basically a short essay on blue black mail and why... A treatsy, if you will. Yeah, a treatise. Well, that's what I said. A treatsy. <laughs> a treatsy. Yeah, he gave us his resume on Blue Black Mill. Um, so stick around for that. We're going to talk about it in more detail in the wind down later on. Additionally, we want to ask all of our listeners to submit questions to us in the future. And uh, hopefully we might make a regular segment out of your questions or the decks that you sent us. You can email us at thedivedown at gmail.com or tweet at us at thedivedown, all one word. And uh, we're really eager to hear from you, and hopefully you can help shape the future of the show. I think we'd all love to hear from our listeners. You know, questions are always fun to talk about, you know, talk about people's ideas or if they have questions for us. You know, we're not experts, but, you know, it's just fun to hear people talk things through, I think, sometimes. And uh, deck lists are really fun to chit-chat about, especially if they're, you know, doing something cool but, you know, still winning. Uh, I think that's something that we really want to talk about and our listeners want to hear about. Yeah, absolutely. If you're going 5 out with a list, please show it to us. I love to talk about modern decks that are cool and actually put up results. And we're going to talk about a new uh, off-the-wall deck uh, later on after we get through the tournament report, too. Something that we've seen do a couple of 5-0s with new cards. Should we jump over to Zach at the tournament desk to start us off with the latest from last weekend? Oh, please. Yeah, so I can take us into that, but I think I'm going to quickly pass the wheel to you on this one because the, what we're looking over is SCG the Classic Indie which if I understood you attended and did pretty well. 
Yeah, you killed it, Stan. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, I didn't win. I did not top eight. <laughs> oh, you're off the podcast then. I, I did not top 16. I did not top 32, but I did top 33. Yeah, Ooh, he got there. 33. Literally got 33rd place. When I saw my name on that sheet at the end of the tournament, I yelled out into the heavens like Darth Vader <laughs> at the end you of the You fell to your knees and cursed the god before you. No! <laughs> That's really good, Stan. That was it, was, money. it was really funny and bittersweet. Most importantly, you you accomplished your goal. You wanted to go better than 5-4, and you did the bare minimum to do so, and went 6-3. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It, it was right down to the wire. It was round nine, game three, and it was a nail-biter, but I got there, and when I won, I, I told my opponent, thank you, and a judge happened to be watching our game, and I just said out loud, this is the best I've ever done in a nine-round comp REL. And the judge took our slip and turned back to me and said, you know what? Congrats on your milestone. And I said, thank you. You know, Stan, it's really important to just look at, you know, goals, I think more than results, right? Like, and you know, you're not, you know, top eighting, top 16, and even top 32ing would feel awesome and feel kind of like an arbitrary achievement, right? But I think it's most important that you had a goal and you set out to accomplish it, and you did. And then next time you can say, okay, I'll go 7-2 this time, or I'll go 6-3 and just ensure that my play is super tight and I'm not making mistakes. So I think it's it's awesome. Thanks. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty pleased. I got to say it's the result of a ton of hard work and just thinking really hard in all my games and also thinking about the tournament ahead of time and trying to get in with a deck that I could either play well or at least surprise my opponents with so i'm not sure if we want do we want to talk about the deck i played just yet or do we want to get into that a little later yeah i think i think i think it's good to talk about now so that you can provide some context for anything you bring up yeah i think maybe we can talk about your deck and the results you had and then we can go over the decks that actually won the tournament yeah sure sure i'll make it as brief as possible but i had originally thought and said on last week's show that i was going to play arclight and I was originally planning to play blue-red Arclight, but the night before I did an FNM and went 0-3, and all of my opponents said that they essentially went to FNM planning to hate out the blue-red Arclight deck. Yeah. So my thinking was I don't want to play in a nine-round tournament where everyone is gunning to get the deck I'm playing. Right. And I'd seen previously uh, some 5-0s, maybe there was just one, that uh, played Arclight in a mono-red burn prowess brew yeah well i mean let's let's talk about what it's doing right it's like it's got it's got the the eight prowess creatures the one drop prowess red creatures monastery swiss spear soul scar mage right and then it has arc yes. light, it has arc light phoenix uh so don't kill us people who are tired of hearing us talk about arc light phoenix this is not really an arc light deck i don't think it's more just of a prowess burn deck that happens yeah, to just so do a plan that gets arc light phoenix into play anyway yeah and yeah, like you said, Stan, right? It has, I mean, I, I, I play tested this in a, in a league on Magic Online as well. And so, like, it's really trying to cast a bunch of burn spells for that prowess, um, prowess triggers, and then also recur the phoenixes that might be in your graveyard. And it kind of cuts most of the direct burn spells like Rift Bolt, Boros Charm, Searing Blaze. And then it has, like, things like Faithless Looting, Gut Shot, Manamorphose that really allows you to churn through the deck and trigger prowess and get the phoenixes back out of the yard, right? Yeah. Dave had played a few leagues with it as well on yeah. MTGO. So it's too bad he's not here to talk about it, but he was one of the people who 
didn't exactly encourage me or talk me into playing the deck, but hearing him say how well he had done essentially put it on my radar. And he had talked about getting a few turn three kills, which I then was able to pull off at the tournament as well. Like I had someone scoop on turn two just because I presented such a clock and did so much damage that they knew they weren't going to come back after that. Yeah, it's a fun deck. We'll talk more about it later for sure. Yeah, what else What else did well at the tournament, Zach? Yeah, run us down. Yeah, Dredge won it, and we can go into that in a second. Dredge has been around the, the skirts of things for a while. Blue-White in second, uh, we're Prison in third, which is, I think, what the KCI decks are going to turn into and start moving more towards people who have those pieces. Yeah. Fourth place was a Blue-Red Phoenix deck piloted by Ross Miriam, who I know Sting had a chance. To, yeah, yeah. Sting got a chance to talk to a little bit at the tournament. Yeah, well, he really helped pioneer the shell that everyone is playing now with Blue Red Phoenix. So I got to say hello and chat him up. Just, you know, I, I didn't want to waste too much of his time, but mostly I just gave him a dive down pin and told him I thought he was really cool and snagged a photo with him. And then the next list, not to get in your way there, Zach, but the next list, he went up to like three crackling drakes, but he also had two main deck light up the stage, which kind of gives a little bit more card draw and, um, you know, keeps churning through the deck more too. So I wonder uh, what Tariq would have to say about the light up the stage in the main deck as in, as in that flex spot. Tariq, what do you think? <laughs> Tariq, call in, please. Yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll talk about, uh, we'll talk about light up the stage a little bit later. I think we have some thoughts oh, yeah. on that and that card's been putting up some real results. Yeah. I think what's important about Tariq's list is that he, I'm guessing that his three sideboard dragons claw did a lot. Um, as burn continues to rise in popularity, I think that was probably a good call on his part. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I run three uh, dragons claw on my sideboard for my deck, and it's just it feels very much like burn. If you're running red and you have dragons claw on your sideboard, it feels very much like burn can no longer win if you have one out before you're at like six or whatever. Mm-hmm. I played against a burn opponent. I had three dragons claw in my deck. I managed to get two of them out in a single game post board, and I don't think I could have won otherwise. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then speaking of which, we have burn. It's got the full playset of light up the stage and skewer, which once again we're going to talk on that maybe a little bit later. It has four Rakdos charm in the board, which is interesting. Uh, there's, you know, a little bit more Kiki-ish decks popping up, especially with the pod, but I don't know if that's a weight against that or maybe just solid artifact. It's probably, the, it's probably for the for the, for the graveyard hate. Oh, yeah. Also, <laughs> the other little known mode. Yeah, it's got some weird stuff. It's like it's sideboarding two shocks. Like it has uh, only mono red in the main deck, and then it has Sacred Foundry and uh, Blood Crypt in the board i believe which i think is unusual but maybe they wanted that surprise factor in the sideboarder games with those splash cards yeah let's keep let's keep chugging through this list my dude yeah absolutely we got amulet at seven and then eight we have another were prison deck that eighth place player michael Coyle, beat me in round four of the tournament in fact he ended my hot streak i, I started the day 3-0 and then i was paired against him in round four and i think he too owed me if i recall what a dream killer (laughs) he was very nice though and then the next day i saw him streaming on twitch and i was like oh you're a streamer (laughs) and i met i messaged him and we chatted about sun droplet really i think he sided in sun droplet against me and he gained maybe 15 or 20 life off that card i was really impressed with it in his war prison deck specifically so there there you go that's the top eight yeah i um some highlights of like the 
9 through 16, I think we could look at is uh, Elves shows up every once in a while. You know, it's rearing its head at 10th there. The 12th place burn list is a, a Rakdos burn. And it has like, it's a pretty interesting list. It has like a main deck, Exquisite Firecraft, actually, I think two of them, and four Skewer the Critics. No light up the stage, but it has like this really lean sideboard where the Eidolons have moved to the board. And it says four Smash to Smithereens, uh, three Ensnaring Bridge, and then four Ley Lines of the Void. So, you know, pretty to the point sideboard there. And I think that's an interesting thing when you have such a low to the ground deck of just tons of one drops and a few two drops, you know, your Eidolon might be doing more damage to you than it is to your opponent. So maybe it's just a double-edged sword. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, will definitely talk about this in the next segment as well, but I've been playing Burn and Modern lately. And I ran a similar deck with a white splash, not a black splash, but still a ton of one drops. And I found that I would hold my idol on back because I didn't want to take the six or eight damage that I would. And it's still a very good card, but you just really have to be playing against someone who's playing more low to the ground drops than you are. And then in 14th place, there's another burn list, which is kind of the traditional Boros burn, but it has kind of like our initial brainstorming with Skewer the Critics, where it's replacing all of the skull cracks, and all the skull cracks have just moved to the sideboard. So kind of just a direct uh, swap for the, the two mana skull crack for the one mana, hopefully, uh, Skewer the Critics. Yeah, so I want to make one quick comment about this elves list that came in 10th place. It was running two main deck scavenging ooze. That's not an elf. Yeah, it's certainly not. <laughs> uh, also had a couple of sideboard damping sphere. And I think this is another good example of a player who came prepared for the metagame. Because those aren't typically cards you want to play in elves. Especially damping sphere can slow down the elves player as well on turns where they're comboing off and producing a ton of creatures. Yeah. But it seemed to work out for the player trying to, you know, plan for whatever was the metagame that very graveyard heavy metagame at the classic. Yeah. That's how you win, you know, come prepared. Absolutely. So yeah, moving on to this uh, modern challenge that happened on January 27th. Uh, no, is it Phoenix in this top 16? So, Hey, uh, number one, <laughs> number one is a, a rock burn deck, similar to the one we just mentioned where it's playing a lot of one drops, very low to the ground, running bump in the night, uh, light up the stage and skew the critics. Ideally also one drops, Four Shard Volley, which is a card that some people only play one of, if any, and 18 lands. So they're just going full stop. And once again, Eidolon's in the side. And it's just interesting. Maybe this is what Burns is going to look like going forward. Just cutting the mana cost as possibly small as you can and dumping your hand repeatedly. Who knows? We'll talk about that in a second. Second, yeah. Amulet Titan, which is a deck that we've been seeing a lot of. And they have a single Ugin the Spirit Dragon in this one. And then two two of this card, Wargate, which I have not seen in any other Amulet Titan lists. I mean, I'm sure it, it has showed up maybe once or twice, but uh, looking at the MTG Goldfish list, I didn't see it typically popping up, which is like an X uh, Bant colors that you can tutor up a permanent of CMC X or less and put it into play. So when you've got a ton of mana, you can really, you know, you can tutor up any permanent you need. Probably a handy thing. Um, but yeah, I think it was some ni- nice to see a little bit of spice and creativity uh, in that Amulet Titan list. Yeah, absolutely. And then third, we got a blue white control and their main deck in the settle, which I know is something we've talked about on this podcast before. So yeah, I, I, I got main deck set all the wreckage by you de- by uh, Azorius control as well. When I was playing uh, that prowess burn list where I had three guys going in, they didn't cast a sweeper on turn four. So I thought, well, maybe they just didn't have it. And then, you know, of course I got settled. So that was a fun experience. 
the the mana actually was useful for me in the game. So you know, it's not it's not a you know it's not painless on their end. But yeah, that was I think something that they're smart to bring in at this point. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, we got fourth living end, pretty standard. Fifth, Bant Spirits, which is a deck that is, I, I think, is maybe waning a little bit in popularity lately. Mm-hmm. Six, Bant Spirits, so maybe not waning quite as much if we got back to back fifth and six. But I'm yeah. saying overall, there's some. Uh, I haven't seen it quite as much online or in, in stores even. Yeah, that that fifth place Bant Spirit deck also had two main deck Deputy of Detention, which is yes. a card we talked about on our spoiler preview episode and. It's nice to see that that is getting some utility in modern. Mm-hmm. Yes, I've had it played against me, and it is quite good. Was it how was it played just as a hard cast, or did they sneak it in using Court of Calling or Coco? Uh, it got vialed in against me and got a Blood Moon. That's how you do it. Yeah, that, that is how you do it, right? Yeah, that's that is brutal. Yeah, I didn't win that game, but it, <laughs> I got to see that card, and it went oh. I'm going to just lose now, aren't I? So six again, uh, this Bant Spirits one in sixth place does not have this spice, but it's still just, you know, seemingly a very good deck. Seventh, we got another Amulet Titan, which is also a very good deck. And then eighth, everyone's finite affinity, which hardens scales, but is that just stock affinity at this point? Yeah, hardens scales affinity, or as we know it now, real affinity. <laughs> yeah, better affinity. Modular affinity. Yeah. So I'm loving the Driven to Despair in the board of this ninth place dredge list. I think it's just it seems like a pretty cool card for uh, dredge to be running. Um, we see again another prison deck in tenth. Uh, interesting to see in fourteenth place, just straight up old school at this point. Burn has got no new cards in it. Fifteenth place is an old school Jun list. Sixteenth place is another traditional burn list. So you know these old strategies are still putting up some results. I mean, it's the modern challenge at sixteenth place might not be the best thing, but it's you know something that's it's still competitively viable. One thing I want to talk about with you guys too on the five O dumps, I saw a couple of these Prime Speaker Vanifer pod lists and wanted to just keep you guys and our listeners aware of them. I'm sure the hardcore modern fans are already looking for pod to come back. And so, you know, they're relying on prime speaker Vanifer, of course, which is two blue green. And when you tap her, she does birthing pod things. You know, you sacrifice a creature to get one with one higher CMC out of your deck. And so it runs a bunch of creatures uh, that allow for untapping the prime speaker with like, uh, growing CMC. So it has things like uh, Skurb Ranger, I believe it's how you pronounce it, Bounding Crassus, Breaching Hippocamp, and those all come in and then allow Prime Speaker to untap. Court of Calling, Eldritch Evolution, tutors up the cards you need. And it, looking at the deck list, it seems to like go off with Kiki Jiki and like Resto Angel, like that classic, or Deceiver Exarch, or the Zealous Conscripts, uh, things like that. And I don't know if you guys have faced it yet, but I saw it once when I was playing a league and it really can go off if you give it the time to set up. But I was playing such an aggressive deck that two games out of three, it just had no time to set up at all. But I I think that against a deck that isn't going as fast as like a super burn deck, I think it can really do something cool. And I'm really excited to see the potential of the deck and the new pod on a stick. Yeah, absolutely. I've played against it once before with Scred, and I was able to get the win out, but barely, and because I had the removal each time, it very much felt like the deck would just play the card and say, can you answer this? And if you let me untap, I'm just going to win on my turn. And that's an incredibly powerful thing. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, I'm excited to see that too, Shane. I actually saw an article on 
CFB about how to combo with that deck and all the different options and lines it has. So we'll link to that in the show notes to give people something to look at. And now we're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to go into the dive down of this week's episode, where we will be looking at the new versions of Burn. Stay with us. And we're back. So for this week's Dive Down, we're going to look at Burn. And we did something unique for this episode in that all of us tested various versions of a Burn deck. And like I mentioned earlier, I played the Mono Red Phoenix Burn at the SCG Classic. Hold on, Stan. To not not tilt our listeners, let's call it like Prowess Burn. What do you think? Do you like that idea? Prowess Burn. That's hard because the only thing that makes it unique from other burn decks is the phoenix package i think you can call it phoenix burn yeah other burn decks have a prowess creature at least one in the swiss beer i just know that everyone listening is going to be real mad at us but we'll just call it phoenix burn yeah i'm just going to start a separate podcast all about phoenix and it won't even be exclusive to magic we'll just talk about birds (laughs) (laughs) mythical birds (laughs) yeah oh man that's good all right so as we start looking at all these burn decks i want to start first with why is Burn back, and what's the new tech that might make the deck a little better than it used to be? So we uh, talked about these cards in our previews for Ravnica, and I, they are better than I think any of us could have possibly imagined. Maybe Dave was just totally correct on Light Up the Stage, the card we're going to talk about right now. It has been just unreal in me playing against it, me playing with it, me seeing other people cast it. It the The ability to have the cards not only for a full go around, but not have there be a cast clause, meaning you can get lands from them, which has just been one of the most powerful things to me in that it is, it feels like it's never a dead card and you're almost always going to be getting or casting rather those two spells from it. Yeah. It's, I think Dave called it. Well, um, light up the stage is basically playing like, you know, just like a one mana divination. Right. And it really is, I think the first card advantage engine that modern burn is going to be able to actually run. And that's pretty huge. Right. Um, I think that there's never really been something that modern burn is, is was able to get some good card draw off of. And if you can just cast it for one mana, you get two cards. That's really something that lets burn catch up and have cards in hand, essentially, to play either that turn or the next. Yeah, absolutely. I know people have tested things like Bedlam Reveler even. There was Abbot of Carol Keep. I, I think uh, the Siege, the Red Siege was tested as well to try, try for that card advantage. Yeah. But I think a lot of the issue with those cards is you're required either to try to get use out of it right away or that it's too slow. And this is both uh, like very low costing, easy to cast, and you have a whole turn to use it. So it sort of ticks all the boxes that the other cards weren't able to tick to make burn where it is right now. Yeah, the extra turn is absurd. Didn't you yeah. think so, Stan, when you were playing that? The card was absolutely bananas almost every time I played it. And I got to the point where I would just hold up a land if I had the chance to cast Light Up the Stage in my first main phase. Because being able to play lands off of it almost felt like I was ramping. I mean, I guess it's not quite ramp, but it just made me feel like my hand had nine cards in it at the start of the game. 
Yeah, and you're able to, you know, you really get to draw through your deck. So you are always hitting your land drops, it feels, even like in an 18 land deck. And if you're not hitting your lands, you are hitting spells. And so it's just like, it really does feel like, you know, it plays into the the plan of the deck, which is you're dealing damage to your opponent. You know, the worst case scenario is casting it for three, and that's not the end of the world. No, exactly. I When I played Burn this weekend at my LGS, I ripped one from the top and I tapped out for it and I revealed a burn spell and a land and I played both those cards. So typically where you would have just ripped a card and went, oh, pass, you got to dig two other cards deeper and it's just, it's it can't be discounted just how ridiculously powerful that is. Yeah. The biggest setback I had with it, and I think this is the only time when it was an issue in the deck I played, was if it if I played Light Up the Stage with less than four mana up and a phoenix got under there then it's just an opt at best so that that that's less than ideal but sometimes i'm able to cast light up the stage or this deck is able to cast light up the stage later in the game when you can just hard cast the phoenix which is still mm-hmm. perfectly fine yeah that kind of takes me back to thinking about episode one right which is when we talked about like you, you play a thought scar anyway even if you accidentally you know mill over the card that you wanted to cast you know it's the your your percentage chance to hit stuff that you want to cast and can cast is a lot better than hitting one of the phoenixes out of your deck so it's just the cost of entry for a card like that right and you're yeah, putting this in a deck that has a lower curve anyway so the chances are you're going to be able to cast or play both the cards you see the majority of the time at least I think that's an inter- that's a that's a major point you brought up, Zach, which is that light up the stage does encourage you to lower your average CMC and try to get your curve down. I think that's why we're seeing the Rakdos burn decks and some of the mono red and and the Boros deck shaving some of their two CMC spells to try to in- in- let them be able to cast even more spells off their light up the stage, or you know, plant when your light up the stage is going to cost one mana as well. So you're going to want to have that mana left over to to cast the spells you rip off the top. So light up the stage is going to modify perhaps some of the two CMC spells that people have typically played in burn. I have a question for you guys. Sure, please. Did did, did any of you play one of the versions that had gut shot in it? I did not. Yes, yeah. We, you and I played like the same deck. Oh, okay. I, I played pretty stock burn. Well, it's not stock burn. I played burn with light up the stage and skewer the critics. I did not do any of the phoenix or other fancy stuff that you guys did. Gotcha, Shane. When you did, you ever open a a seven that had one land, a gut shot, and skewer the critics? I can't speak to that exact scenario. I think. I mean, I did definitely keep one landers, but um, I kept them mostly if i had i mean i had to have a prowess creature almost always right that was essential Mm -hmm. um and so you have a very high percentage chance of drawing one of the eight of those and if i had a few one cmc spells which was very likely or especially a light up the stage i would probably keep that because i know that the chances of me if i'm on the play i have a swift spear or i have a Soul Scar Mage, you know, I'm going to get in there on turn two, probably. And then that lets me cast my light up the stage, draw two more cards along with the draw on my second turn. So I have a decent chance of getting to a second land. And even if I don't, um, playing off of one land is fine for a little bit with that deck. Why do you ask? I know that you were, you were, I think you probably had a point to get to that I missed completely. 
I was wondering specifically what your take was on using light up the stage as a way to keep riskier hands and dig for lands when you're, you know, maybe open a hand that only has one in there. That was something that I had to think about a lot and consider whether I wanted to mull away a hand that had a prowess creature or at least a ton of one mana spells, but was land light. Yeah, that's something that I uh, had to deal with when I was playing the burn deck. So I don't run the Gutshot or anything like that, but I do run Bomat Courier and Monastery Swift Spear and Goblin Guide. So you're in your hand, you're seeing these one mana haste creatures and one land, and I'll keep that if I have it light up the stage and that haste creature. Only if I have two haste creatures, though, in case one dies. But if I have the two haste creatures light up the stage and only one land, I will keep that hand because the explosive power of light up is just so powerful. Yeah, I think um, what you were saying earlier, Stan, which is is kind of how how can you use Gutshot in a deck like this? And to me, if you if you just have a Gutshot and a light up the stage and you're looking at it as like a way, OK, I can draw two more cards off that you still spent two cards to get two more cards. Right. And so light up the stage and Gutshot could have been any card in your deck other than those two. So you're simply replacing them at a cost to you, either the cost of the single red mana for Gutshot um, or paying the life for Gutshot. So you're putting your opponent down one and you're putting yourself down two and you're spending two cards out of your hand to then get two more cards that you might not necessarily even be able to cast off light up the stage. So I think that it's perhaps tempting and perhaps maybe a little bit results oriented thinking in my opinion, not to, you know, pile on you or anything like that. But I think that, you know, perhaps that kind of works out in a pinch and you play Gutshot for all sorts of reasons in the deck, right? Like it's a free spell for prowess. It's a free spell to kill a mana dork on the other side. It's something that allows you to enable spectacle, right? So again, like we harp on a lot and stress in the cast is, is this on plan? And I think that Gutshot is on plan with a deck, but I'm not sure that looking at it as simply a spectacle enabler is something that I think is particularly appealing to me, at least. Yeah, I think the the real practical takeaway is that might be a very necessary evil line to take if you've already mulled to six or five. But if you've got a seven with one land and uh, light up the stage or maybe no no threat, no creature prowess threat, that might be a hand worth mulling away. Yeah, I think I think you really want to mull for a prowess creature on one for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Are you never keeping a seven that doesn't have a creature? I can't see doing that. Like, There's not enough burn in the deck to be like a burn deck, right? Where sometimes you have to keep a no creature hand in burn because you, maybe you have like two lands and five burn spells and you're like, well, this is good enough. Like I'm not going to get a better six in this. Right. But I think Mm -hmm. in the prowess Phoenix burn deck, if you don't have a creature, you can't get that explosive start and you simply don't have enough direct burn in the deck to warrant keeping it. Yeah. I agree with that. Maybe there are some matchups. I'm I'm just thinking out loud at this point, but there might be some matchups where you can expect to play a longer game. And while your plan is always ideally to try to end this on turn three or four and make a big explosive play with swinging with a big prowess up creature and a ton of burn damage on the side. You know, sometimes like if you're in a really tight spot and, and the game is going long, I, I, I can see potential to just hold a bunch of burn spells and a light of the stage to get through your deck a little bit. 
Yeah, I just think it's it's one of those decks that relies on being explosive through prowess. And if you're not acting on that game plan, uh, I think you need to mull. I think if Dave was here, he would probably say the deck is so all in that you don't want to try a plan that's less all in. Yeah, I think that's definitely what we've been talking about this week when we've been talking about our testing is that he has definitely stressed that. Like, you know, you and I were talking about in the burn mirror that we'd think about shaving some gut shots, right? Because we don't mm-hmm. want to reduce our life total. Maybe we want, we want to have better over our overall card quality than our opponent. And, you know, Dave, I remember in chat was saying something like, you know, I wouldn't shave them. It just, it's, it's a busted card in this deck. It allows you to do too much and I'd keep them in. So I think that, yeah, I think that you're right on the money with what he'd say. Yeah, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that specific sideboard choice, though. <laughs> I, I always happily took out the gut shots in, in my burn mirrors, but to each his own. Yeah, I think that you really want to have card for card overall better quality than your opponent. And I think that gut shot is potentially one of the weakest single cards in the matchup. So I'd want to have more powerful sideboard options. Like, you know, I think you and I both ran some dragon's claws and that's definitely how I won in a, in a versus a regular burn. I'm thinking maybe now we could talk about maybe some of the downsides or some of the alternative lines you have to take with the new cards in the shell. Um, I think I want to touch on skewer the critics too, though, Zach. Okay. Um, and tr- for me, I think that's as good as advertised, right? Yeah, it's absolutely. This, you know, even though it's a, con- it's, it's a conditional sorcery s- speed bolt, and it's still a sorcery speed bolt when you're consistently dealing damage and enabling spectacle, right? So it, it's 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 great. I think it, I think the being able to target uh, any target is really awesome. It's not just a conditional lava spike. It's awesome as uh, just hitting anything when you need it to. Yeah, I've used it to kill Karn recently in a game against Strong. No, that don't kill very, Karn. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, felt, it felt very powerful. It felt like that was the right play to make. I, I wouldn't subsequently won the game, but it just, wow, Lava Spike. A Lava Spike can hit Planeswalkers. Okay, yeah, I you can redirect it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Anyway, I, I cast against Karn. It was very good. But something that's interesting about that card, as well as the previous card I mentioned, is that they're both sorceries. Yeah. So it makes casting them a little more interesting. And that's where Gutshot can be a little good, is that you can then go ahead and get it in with the prowess. But I found myself when I was playing recently, there were several times when I wanted to cast the skewer the critics before combat so i can get my prowess triggers but i didn't have three mana i only had two so i Mm -hmm. had to swing in to get that damage to cast it and i missed out on a point of damage and it happened enough in enough games where i really felt like oh i have missed the turn of lethal because of this yeah it's it's not perfect that's for sure i i did notice um when i was playing you know with the eight prowess creature build is that you're sequencing and the cards that you don't cast on one turn to maybe reserve them for pre-combat activities the next turn can be really important. Because like you said, unless you have something that can deal direct damage to the opponent, you then cannot cast your skewers, you cannot cast your light up the stages off spectacle, and then which really enables your prowess to be super powerful. And I think they're at their best pre-combat. And that is one area where gutshot can be advantageous, right? Because then you get to able to you're able to do all that stuff that really maximizes the value of uh, prowess. Yeah, and, and I don't think that regular burn has any interest in running a gutshot either. So it's just interesting that this Phoenix deck gets another tool that burn doesn't get I really like the point you mentioned about 
pre-combat burn spells, Shane, because one of the things that Dave told me when I picked up this deck and decided to take it to the tournament and he had more testing with it than I did. I, I essentially had no testing before the tournament. Yeah, that's crazy. Was Yeah, I know. It was awesome. But he basically said that everything this deck wants to do is on the first main phase and you're really not incentivized to do anything at instant speed on your opponent's turn or really much action in the second main phase. And for the most part, I always found that to be true. The only spell I ever wanted to cast post-combat was occasionally light up the stage to basically set up future turns. Exactly, yeah. Do you guys have similar feelings about pre-combat actions in the other burn decks that are playing these spectacle spells? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Or saving the spell for combat if you want to do some tricks with Monster Race Spear or something. But having to cast, like I said, that damage after combat has led me to lose a game because my opponent was alive at two life and realizing that if I'd got that prowess then I would have done it. And that's, you know, a one scenario thing, but it has felt very visceral in that moment. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things where when you experience it once it feels much worse than perhaps the good feelings that you get from all the other times you get to cast it. Right. Yeah, so absolutely. like, I mean, that that's definitely a weakness of, of especially I think skewer the critics, right. Where, Unless you have a burn spell in hand to enable it, you can't cast it pre-combat to to maybe clear something out of the way if you need to get rid of a blocker or to you know to ping your opponent or cast it during combat to do some combat tricks with Swiss spear or something like that. So, Zach, I uh, can I ask you a question? Yeah, of course. So, in the burn deck you ran, what was what were your two mana spells? So my two mana spells there were I put in Lightning Helix and mm-hmm. Searing Blaze. Mm-hmm. So no Skullcrack, no Boros Charm. No, I moved uh, Skullcrack out of the deck and same with Boros Charm. I felt like the life gain from Lightning Helix was very important. I feel like there was going to be a lot of other aggro decks I might be facing. And yeah. I would rather shave off the one damage to the face and be able to gain three life. I also was running Bomat Courier in the main as well, along with Skewer the Critics and Light Up the Stage. How did Bomat Courier perform for you before I ask about the, the two mana spells some more? Um, I really, really enjoyed him. I do wonder if a deck like that might need a Tarkus command or some sort of other pump. There are several times where yeah. I was swinging with him and just going to have to take whatever was under him and wishing maybe he could trade up or deal more damage. But I, I liked it, and I feel like there's something there, and the deck definitely needs... There's so many different builds of it. People are running Rakdos, for instance, even though I was running Boros. There's so mm-hmm. many... These two new cards open up so many strategies that I think there's there's going to be a period where people are trying a lot of different things, trying to figure out what's sticking and what's more powerful or not. Yeah, so we're definitely in a period of experimentation, and the... The definitive best is likely never to be discovered. I think we probably will have a, a few different styles of burn, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I, so I wanted to get back to the the two mana spells. So you were running the full package of light up the stage, right? How did you find the higher CMC spells impacted the the experience of playing light up the stage? There was a time uh, where I got uh, two Rift Bolts off of it, and that just felt absolutely mm. terrible. Right, because you can't pay the suspend cost. So you either have to pay the three mana, which I did not have, or they're dead. 
And I luckily went on to win that game. I got some pretty good draws, but that moment felt like my tempo had just completely gone out and I was just about to have the tides turn against me. So it's good, but I feel like maybe Rift Bolt comes out of the deck and who knows, needs more testing, things like that. But that was such a non-bow and light up the stage is so good that I do wonder if just totally building your deck around this card is the way to go. I'm having similar thoughts, maybe changing up the Phoenix package in mono red, just so I could be a little more all in on light up the stage and hitting for as much consistent damage on turns one or on turns two and three, rather than trying to set up some big Phoenix plays. So I can use light up the stage specifically as an engine to stay in the game when sometimes the burn deck typically fizzles out. But Stan, I, I, I think that it completely does work with the Phoenix plan, to be honest with you, I think that there's no reason. What, what would you replace the the four Phoenix with? Like, I think that, I think that light up the stage allows you to then get those three spell turns to get your Phoenixes either out of the yard in the first place. Cause you, you cycled them out with a, a looting spell or that they were killed once and you're just getting them back to further stress your opponent's removal package. Yeah, th- that's a good point. So for me, the biggest challenge was getting Phoenix into the yard because you only have four enablers. So that's four Faithless Looting in your deck. If you open a Phoenix and don't find four Faithless Looting, then you're either hard casting it or never casting it. Which is fine. I mean, in my opinion, like a, a four mana, three, two haste flyer can finish off games as well as anything. And then what I mean, what I think is most important about it is unless it's exiled and, you know, they're, they're either spending their removal early on your prowess creatures that are going bonkers and, and, you know, potentially doing eight, 10 points of damage to them, or they use it on your phoenixes that are hopefully coming out pretty early. But then when you just draw into more spells and you get the phoenix back out of the yard and that against further stress what they're trying to do against you. Yeah, maybe. I, I think, as you said, the deck is still figuring itself out. Sure. I just found compared to UR, which is so tuned to play a bunch of spells in one turn. Well, so are, we, are we calling it UR now and not is it Phoenix? <laughs> uh, I don't know. That, that's a personal thing. I have a really hard time using the Ravnica guilds to describe decks that just because of the colors. That's uh, that's on me. Okay. I lost my train of thought. Oh, basically I was saying UR is so tuned to playing a ton of spells and finding those enablers that... Yeah. Sp- Moving away from a build that was designed to get birds out of the yard and as well as just play a ton of spells in a turn felt underpowered and a little less ideal. And I found myself wondering whether I'm just trying to split the hair and rather I'd instead be better off going all in either on a burn plan or going all in on a bird plan. Yeah, I mean, I think personally that is it Phoenix is probably probably a better Phoenix deck, but the Phoenix burn deck is probably a better burn deck. Does that make sense? Like in terms of like, if you want to go a little bit faster and maybe have a better edge in the mirror or be able to be, you know, extremely explosive, then you'd want to run the kind of Phoenix prowess burn. But I think, I mean, I think you're right. I don't think that it's the best shell for Phoenix. It doesn't necessarily make it a worse deck or that Phoenix doesn't belong in the deck altogether. But I think we'll see it kind of flesh itself out over time. All right, guys. So I feel like we've talked about this a lot, but um, just to quickly run down the types of burn that we're seeing right now, 
um, while things are still being ironed out. So we see the Rakdos build. It's really going for the throat or perhaps the face here. It's got a lot of the one mana burn spells, but it operates more at sorcery speed. So that's a weakness. But it gets some interesting sideboard options with things like collective brutality, which might be really good against the mirror. Um, Rakdos Charm, or even being, a- being able to pay for spells like Leyline of the Void or Surgical Extraction. So what do you guys think about Bump in the Night right now? I know uh, Dave wanted to be on record as saying that he did take the Rakdos Burn deck through a league, and he was essentially like, why does this deck exist? Um, you know, he, he never felt like he was able to flashback Bump in the Night and just felt like, you know, he'd rather be doing the, a Prowess build or probably even a traditional Burn build. Yeah, he went 0-4 drop. Yeah, I mean, it's, just, it's you know, again, it's a sample size thing, but that's unusual, I think, to go just 0-4 with Burn. Like, you're expecting to win one or two games for matches yeah. for sure. Yeah, and he's got experience playing Burn. So, yeah. of course, sample size is small, but he knows what he's doing with the deck. So, I trust some of his uh, uh, assessments. But to answer your question, Shane, I, to me, Bump in the Night makes sense on paper as part of an all-in package to activate Spectacle. Um, sure. I can see the problem of not being able to recast it being a knock against it because then it could just be any other burn spell or another one drop creature. The card is essentially just Lava Spike that maybe might be better Lava Spike. I don't. I am personally not a fan of the card. I have originally played with it when I built Burn about three years ago, and since then I have really been sour on it but i do get that if you do get to six mana sometimes that is a card that will just get you there when you need to get there in the very end yeah i think we'll see if racto sticks around as like a a strategy that continues to win or if people are just testing it right now also worth noting it's not actually like lava spike since it can't hit a planeswalker which sometimes is relevant sure important distinction absolutely good point so yeah and then we see uh, classic Burrows burn, and that sometimes is just the same way it's been built, or it might have some of the new cards. Uh, that's likely not going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, we see kind of the Phoenix Prowess burn, which is really explosive, but perhaps more fragile, and it really wants to get, it wants that clear battlefield to get the Prowess damage in. Stan, I don't know if you experienced this, but I was playing versus humans, which was the only loss I had in one of the leagues I did with uh, the Phoenix Burn. And the issue I had with them is not only did I have to mull, but you know everyone has to mull sometimes, but they just were able to you know vial in a blocker uh, even on one because they have eight one mana creatures that they can just vial in even on their first turn. To, mm-hmm. If you know you you think you have the coast clear, you're like, well, I I really need to get this damage in. I don't know if I'm going to win the long game, so let's just go for it here. And then they just file in a hierarchy, and you're like, well, poop, my guys don't have trample. Yeah, I can see humans being a tight match because they can probably stabilize sometimes once you're running low on cards. Yeah, and then they clock you in the air. Exactly. Post board against humans, I really like playing Blood Moon. If I'm in a red deck that can run Blood Moon, I've won a lot of games against humans thanks to that card. And for that matter, a braid is a really great card against humans because it catches both creatures and the vials, so you can more or less lock them out and you know get some tempo advantage that way. Sure. Yeah, I feel like those are cards that are only really being played in the prowess version of the deck, though. Sure. Yeah, so I mean, like we talked about all these quite a bit, so we don't need to 
keep going too deep on them. But that's kind of, I think, what we're seeing. Uh, I think we'll, over the coming month or two, I think we'll see what's kind of happening. I think a lot of people are playing Burn and testing Burn, um, playing with these new toys just like we are. And I think the the deck's a lot of fun. I think it's probably more fun than ever. Um, and I'm really happy to sleeve it up anytime in the near future. As we previously mentioned, all of us have taken versions of this deck for rides lately and just really enjoyed what we've played against. We, we've mentioned there's pros and cons of the new cards, the casting window, sequencing, etc. So we also saw a lot of these decks pop up in the tournament results we just mentioned. Yeah. Various builds, as we also touched on, but this deck, this fast red deck is showing up and seeing more tournament results. So I want to talk to you guys. What do you think of the best way to combat this deck or the best way to try to prevent them from going about their plan is? So, guys, you can tell me if I'm crazy or not, okay? But I think that a good strategy against a deck that's trying to kill you with burn is life gain. You're crazy. <laughs> You're here. <laughs> Shane, there is a hard and fast rule that life gain in Magic is always bad and should never be played, and Kitchen Finks is strictly unplayable. These are jokes. Who says that? Um, no, I mean, I think that, like, uh, well, there's a nugget of truth in there, right, no, Stan? But, but I'm pushing it too far. Obviously, a good life gain card <laughs> is very good against Burn, and Dragon's Claw is a great example of that. Yeah, I think the real question, though, is what's a good life gain card? And you know, not every deck. I don't think I don't think an asymmetrical Dragon's Claw is good. Like, I think you're going to run it in a in a red deck, right? I think a Dragon's Claw can be really great yeah. there. But like, you're not going to bring in a Dragon's Claw like in it's just as an artifact because like it's not going to do enough for you. But you know, there's there's a lot of there's not a lot, but there's enough flexible life gain sideboard options like a timely reinforcements in a white base control deck. A Knight of Autumn is a pretty flexible creature in, in a lot of creature based decks that can cast it. Blessed Alliance. Uh, good point. Good point. I was really impressed with Sun Droplet when I played against a prison deck. So although they weren't getting, I mean, so Sun Droplet is somewhat similar to Dragon's Claw in that it. Yeah. What, what does it do? I honestly don't know. So I'll just read what Sun Droplet does. It's a two-mana artifact, and it reads, When you're dealt damage, put that many charge counters on Sun Droplet. At the beginning of each upkeep, you may remove a charge counter from Sun Droplet. If you do, you gain one life. So this is a card that could see some value against other decks and besides Burn. But people will sometimes play it against Burn because it does so much direct damage, but then you can also start taking up your life at the beginning of every upkeep, as opposed to Dragon's Claw, which forces you to wait, essentially, to gain life every time someone casts a red spell. Okay, what else uh, What else is good, you guys? Chalice of the Void is still a very good magic card. The new tech that we mentioned, Skewer the Critics and Light Up the Stage, both cost three mana. So Chalice on three is a little harder to do, but a lot of the enablers are still costing one mana. Like we mentioned, they're going closer to the ground. So you a Chalice on one is going to slow your opponent down, and even if they are eventually hardcasting Skewer the Critics, that's three mana for three damage, and ideally you're doing something yeah. else with that time. Exactly. I think, I mean, Chalice is awesome, right? Um, but one of the things that makes it kind of weaker is that not every strategy and every deck can really play with Chalice. So you have no, to be able... Yeah, so you have to be willing and able to play that style of deck. And as we talked about against the Phoenix decks, you know, the taxing effects get really strong against kind of the, the traditional burn decks because it's harder to really chain enough spells 
together. So, you know, Cathalia, a damping sphere, you know, just making a burn spell cost two or perhaps three is going to really stress the mana. So those are, I think, are good strategies as well. We can add Cumball Console of Allocation to that list of, although it's not quite a tax card, it does punish your opponent for playing lots of, you know, one mana spells. So the single deck that can run Cumball, uh, Mardudes can keep playing Cumball. I think I think Taxes can play it too. Within that frame house, Eidolon is also good against Burn. Like we mentioned, some decks are even moving it to the sideboard. So I feel yeah. like Eidolon is not a bad idea to have around these days. It's it's so good against Burn. Like we said, so many of their spells are one or two mana, and they're trying to, yeah. with Light Up the Stage, you're playing more cards into Eidolon. So if they moved it mm-hmm, to the sideboard, mm-hmm. it might be a good idea for other people to also put it in their sideboard. Yeah, it's one of those things where, like, if you are facing a burn, you know, burn mirror, at, mirror or close to mirror, you and you're on the play, and you know, like maybe you lose game one, game two, you're on the play. You know that you can get that tempo advantage by playing your idol on first and sticking it, and so you're going to get the the advantage both by the damage you can deal with it, uh, just as a creature, and also the fact that they now have to cast spells into it. So you're going to have the advantage there for sure. Absolutely. One of the other things you can do to beat Burn is just racing them. Oh, yeah, for they sure. They are trying to cast seven spells, but if you can either gum up the board um, or get there before them, then sometimes it's a deck that's two ships passing in the night. So if you have a fast, very linear strategy, sometimes that's enough to do it. And I, yeah, this is really, I think, Stan, a, a situation of knowing your role in a matchup, right? And so you might think that as a deck like Spirits, for example, you want to be the control. So you might think that you want to kind of get them with a spell queller and eat one of their spells. And you want to use your one, three spirit to maybe block their, their two power creatures, something like that. But really, if you can make burn change up their game plan and have to play the control and waste their burn spells on your creatures when possible. So the way that you can do that in a number of decks is think about what are you going to realistically be able to cast in that game, right? So board out your slow cards. Like a Spirits is going to take out its collected company, right? Because you're not going to realistically be able to cast that for a lot of value. So if you can lower your curve, uh, try to get on board, take out things that aren't super mana efficient, make burn play that control is always going to be in your benefit because then those burn spells are not going to your dome and you're able to draw the game out and beat them on a card-for-card value. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. Anytime you're forcing burn to kill creatures instead of going phases, such a huge tempo swing, especially if you can follow that up with anything else, and burn is constantly having to race you, like you mentioned. If you can sort of get the step ahead of them, it can just be so backbreaking and so hard for that linear deck to try to catch up. One of the interesting things about some of these new versions of burn is the critical mass of sorcery spells. I find that it's making dispel a little less useful Mm. in certain situations. So that's a card you may want to consider citing in fewer of against burn in the coming weeks, especially while people are leaning into light up the stage and skewer the critics. You want to, if you're countering spells, you want to make sure you can counter a sorcery. Yeah. I know Dave has always loved uh, negate over the more conditional blue counter spells for his board spells. And so, you know, gate is going to tag a lot more as burn goes to a a broader mix of instants and sorceries, perhaps. And a spell pierce might do you well too. 
Absolutely. Like we mentioned, the deck's running very few lands, very low to the ground, and being able to spell pierce to lay up the stage would just be very backbreaking. Yeah, spell pierce actually seems really great right now in modern, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think so too, Stan. Shane, you mentioned it's really important to know your role when playing either as burn or against burn. And I think that's something that I struggle with a lot as the burn player in figuring out how I may or may not change my role in certain matchups because I think that I'm always trying to do as much face damage as possible and just letting sure. creatures go through if I can, if you know, if they're not just going to kill me in one swing. How do you evaluate what your role is in a game based on who you're playing? I think, I mean, that's a really big question, Stan. I think that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's a big episode. I mean, yeah, it's a future episode for sure. I think that, um, understanding your role as burn is what, what is their natural speed, right? One of the best examples is probably burn against the classic affinity deck. Uh, the burn player would pivot into the control. That's one of the things where you said, okay, as a burn player, affinity is trying to race me and they have the ability to get on board really quickly and just stop me. So that's when you would say, okay, I need to remove their anything of value. I need to remove their creatures that are actually going to do damage to me or enable the strategy to work really well, like uh, Arcbound Ravager or um, the Steel Overseer. And I think that's kind of the preeminent example, but I think it's harder when it's more nuanced, right? I don't have a really concise way of answering your question. Zach, I know you have played Burn. So Zach, especially in sideboarded games, when you kind of know what the other player is doing, how do you assess whether you're going to tr- continue to try to be the beatdown or if you're going to need to pivot into a control role? Yeah, that's interesting. I sort of have a personal philosophy about it that I tend to want to go into the control role and think that might be better. A lot of my decks, I will have sideboard and snaring bridge or sideboard chalice as a card that I've cards. I'm sure I've mentioned on here that I'm big fans of, and I have ensnaring bridge in my burn sideboard, for example. And I feel like I much more often want to go, on the back foot and, and sort of sort of stand my ground and dig in. And I find that that works better for me than trying to assess it. If that makes any sense. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that being a really good burn player does require you to understand your role, perhaps more than many other decks because the margins are so slim. I mean, that might not be the case as much right now as we, as burn does get new powerful tools. But I think that the margin of victory can be quite slim. It can, like you said earlier, it can be one or two points of damage. Absolutely. And maybe maybe you just messed up along the way and didn't understand if you needed to turn the corner here and, and become the aggro deck after you've controlled them long enough. And I think that's that burn is a deck that really rewards experience. You know, people do consider it very easy to play. And sure, it can be fun and easy, and you can get a lot out of it that way. But I think to really get that last five percent, you're going to need the reps yeah absolutely i feel like there's less decision trees and less sort of branches in this deck but the ones that are presented to you are so pivotal and so important for example being bolting a creature bolting the face could seem inconsequential and sort of uh, an easy choice at first but you could look later and and thought oh i should have gone face i would be at two and they'd be dead Mm mm-hmm so good question, Stan. I think that is something that uh, we might not have really answered, but I think that we got at a lot of parts of how one would want to think to get at that answer. Yeah, hopefully we can talk a little bit more about roles and, and decks in a future episode. 
For sure. I think, uh, I think knowing your role, um, is one of the most essential parts of being good at modern. And because it's, it's a consequence of knowing your deck, but not only your deck is what your opponent's deck is and what their strategy is and what they're trying to accomplish. And that's really the only way that, uh, people are going to get to be truly great at modern is continually being able to answer that question. What am I trying to do? What is my opponent trying to do? How am I going to disrupt their strategy without diluting mine too much? Okay, guys, good talk about burn. I think I've learned a lot, and I'm certainly going to keep playing the deck because even nine rounds of it, I'm still not tired to see what I can pull off and how many more turn three wins I can achieve in the weeks ahead. For now, though, we need to take a quick break and when we return, we're going to get into the wind down, which I think is the best part of the show. So stay with us. So guys, are we actually going to be talking about mill? It's a perfectly cromulent strategy. it's a lot like burn except instead of trying to race against someone's life total you're just racing against their library i think that's a pretty fair assessment of it actually stan i think like you know mill is definitely one of those things that has been kind of laughed at i think that it's one of those sort of quote-unquote johnny or jenny strategies where it's someone might just do it to be funny or to be weird or to be unique or novel. And I think that it's actually to the point where it's not uncompetitive. I mean, Craig uh, from Philadelphia, he sent us his take on the blue black mill deck. I mean, he says it's honestly tier two, but tier two is actually a pretty big swath of decks right now. Sure, and tier two doesn't mean a deck is not competitive. You can go to your store in 4-0 with the mill deck. We see them in 5-0 dumps all the time. It just means that it's not as popular or maybe consistent as some other decks. Yeah. I, I can I can certainly attest to being someone who has lost against mill in modern and being caught off guard by archive traps or some of the other cards that they have up their sleeve. Yeah, so how does mill work exactly, right? So... You know, Craig says it kind of operates like a blue-black control deck, and it wants to mill the opponent while slowing down and disrupting their game plan. So um, it has some good synergies, he says, that allows you to mill someone out with really good speed if you get lucky with some cards. So basically, it has 16 mill spells. So the Hedron Crab, the Glimpsey Unthinkable. Is that an, that's an older card, right? That's not that new one from... It's from the original Ravnica, yes. Okay, what's the newer card that is from the Amonkhet block, I believe? Are you talking about the enchantment? I believe so, yeah. Where it's like, if you did X number of mills, then they have to mill more or something like that, or... Fraying Sanity. Okay, Fraying Sanity. And what does Fraying Sanity do? Two and a blue enchant player. At the beginning of each end step, enchanted player puts the top X cards of his or her library into his or her graveyard where X is the number of cards put into that graveyard from anywhere this turn. That just makes me appreciate the fact that they're using the term there now instead of his or her. It cleans up that language so much. Space. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, Craig's not actually running that card, but you know he has 16 mil spells. He has 11 support spells like Mission Briefing, Visions of Beyond. He's actually running Triple Surgical Main right now. Um, he has some defense spells like that control package of Fatal Push, Ensnaring Bridge, some Collective Brutality, a Murderous Cut, Crypt Incursion. 
a suite of lands, including some field of ruin. What's interesting about this to me is he actually specifically mentions that people dismiss mill as kind of like library burn, like we said earlier, as kind of a, a, a nice shorthand. But one thing that he mentions is that burn can't handle that long game like mill can thanks to the non-mill card. He says that things like Crypt Incursion and Ensnaring Bridge can really stretch out games, which we definitely have seen. I know that you see, Zach, and when you run Bridge in your decks, it really allows you to, you know, get through your deck, see a lot of cards, stall the opponent. You know, you have things like Visions of Beyond, which is going to be Ancestral Vision. You you get a one-mana draw three. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's totally correct in something that it gains over burn where it doesn't just all of a sudden peter out. It does have those spells to refill and get more in. But I think this also sort of a, a weakness in the way of the deck is that it can, you know, hang a little more on than aggro, but it's not really a mid-range deck exactly yeah. either. So it can operate in this space between, but I feel like it does solidly get beat by a good aggro or a good maiden range deck who's going to focus more on the plan that it's focusing on. Yeah, one of the things other uh, I've noticed is I've played it. There's a player at one of my LGSs who likes to play Mill, and one week I was playing uh, the Rock, and so I was like, "Sweet man, thanks for giving me a gigantic Tarmogoyf." And if you have hand disruption, I think you're pretty you're able to quickly pick out the most important cards out of their hand and kind of stall their game plan. And even when they do start milling you a little bit because they have to, then you're just like, okay, now I have a five, six Tarmogoyf. I'm just going to get in there really fast and you clock them. And, you know, it also, it's going to be advantageous for strategies like Dredge, uh, Phoenix, Hollow One, even Grixis Death Shadow, because they can snap back the spells that go in the yard and then cast their Delve creatures. Yeah, absolutely. At any time, uh, your win con is feeding into another deck's win con that feels pretty bad. So it's not that mill is terrible, or I think it's actually pretty good in the, in the right matchups. It just does have those matchups where it's you're fighting an uphill battle because of the style of deck you've chosen to play. Mm-hmm. This is a good time to note that mill got a couple new toys in the last year. Both mission briefing and field of ruin work really well with a lot of the mill cards. Mission briefing allowing you to get archive traps for their zero cost Mm -hmm. if the trap condition is met and likewise field of ruin being a way to set up that archive trap by essentially forcing your opponent to shuffle their library oh that's a good point i didn't think about that so i think that mill is a strategy that doesn't get respect because i think it's been so not really powerful for so long, but I think it's unfair to continually dismiss a deck that is getting new tools over time that allow it to compete. And I think it's, it's fair to kind of revisit old decks and say, you know, what's better about you? And is it fair to look at it as a competitive strategy? And even if it's not, it's like, who cares? Like, it's not like a deck is, is stamped, with a with a viable on it sure exactly but i think for us and the people that we're talking to you know we we are casual spikes we want to talk to fellow casual spikes it's a deck that you know a quote-unquote casual spike like you said can pick up and they can go for at their lgs and have some fun along the way so should we pick up this deck next week and and talk about it for the next episode are you guys all ready to commit to playing mill I am absolutely not going to be doing that. I'm too busy playing my foil eight whack deck. Remember that, um, that the listeners gave us $2,000 for. 
That's right. We, we don't talk too much about the huge <laughs> amount of money we spent on Foya Leetwack on this show. <laughs> it was a questionable decision, but we were obligated contractually based on the money we accepted. Yeah. Um, That's fair. No, what I want to talk about more in the in the rest of the wind down, guys, is you know, do you guys like playing brews? Like, you know, do you consider Scred a brew? <laughs> Zach? Oh, that's so funny. What a funny haha joke you have made. I'm a haha boy. Okay, I'm, I'll go on the record. Scred is obviously not a brew. I it's a it's real brew. I know it's not a brew. No, but, I I mean, the, when I played the red-green version, that's a brew. That's my brew. And that's not, I think the red version's better. Yeah. But I think that I like brews when they're extensions of decks I understand. For example, red-green Scred or trying to do the new things in Burn. I don't like throwing together a pile of cards I don't have a connection to or understanding with and trying to jam it. I know that's a thing for some people, and I totally respect that. But for me, I like doing sort of extensions or mutations upon things I've already had. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I'm the same way. I mean, you guys know that I'm kind of a filthy net decker. I like to play competitively proven decks and competitively proven lists. I'm always scouring lists to see uh, what's changing and what's happening in them. And, you know, piecing together lists based on amalgamations of, of what I'm seeing uh, winning in that particular strategy. But, you know, I think it, many of some of the decks that have come out of the, come out of nowhere were originally probably Bruce, you know, Grixis Death Shadow or the, the kind of Jun Death Shadow that preceded it or humans. things. Yeah. Humans or even something like Amulet Bloom was probably, you know, those cards were around for a long, long time. And then someone brewed it up, made it work and succeeded with it. So I think that this just, this just goes to show again that over time, brews become real decks or a decks at least real enough to play and have fun with. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there was a, a period of time when something like uh, Living End was someone's fun thing they put together, right? Likewise, I've heard, and this might be a rumor, that Lantern Control was basically a crowdsourced deck idea that came together in a Reddit thread years ago. And someone um, I just- thought it was MTG Salvation for what it's worth. But yeah, it was one dude trying to make this weird prison deck work and taking people's advice and talking about lists and things like that. It just sort of grew into... What now is what were prison a very good deck that you lost to, in fact. Exactly. So Yeah. And I think um and Hollow One exactly. too, right? I think that my understanding of Hollow One is it was essentially a kind of like a group conversation, probably like on a Discord where people were like, you know, we have this deck, what can we do to discard and cycle things through our deck and make make the the build work and that came out of nowhere as well. So, you know, they might be bruised for a short period of time or for years, but I think it's one of those things where if you're not paying attention, then you're going to miss out on being the unknown. And as we know, sometimes being the unknown is more powerful than simply being strong. I love it. Yeah. I think that wraps up this week's episode of the dive down as always, check us out on Twitter at The Dive Down or shoot us an email, thedivedown at gmail.com or leave a comment if you see one of our Reddit posts. We're always eager to hear from our fans and feel free to submit the decks that you've been winning your local tournaments or MTGO leagues with. If you've got something innovative that you're cooking, we are really eager to hear it. And it might be something that we talk about on a future episode. Also, please remember to smash that subscribe button on the podcast. Destroy it. Yeah, on the podcast app you're using. We want to make sure that you are on top of our episodes as soon as they come out. 
And if you're on iTunes or Apple, consider leaving us a review because that helps new listeners find us. And we want to make sure we're helping as many people as possible get better at modern and enjoy this game that we all love. And even if we're not helping them, they're at least listening to us. (laughs) If you haven't already done so, check out Tapped on YouTube. It's an MTG talk show that's recorded by our pal Scott here in Chicago. All the hosts of the Dive Down were on an episode of Tap, so check it out. You might enjoy that as well. A huge thanks, as always, to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music on our show. So until next time, I hope you found what you're looking for. All right, guys. Thanks for listening again. Take care.